0: Thank you, Burns. I appreciate that. I appreciate those remarks. And I think we've already, tonight, I don't know how y'all feel, but I had chill bumps coming up on my arms as the group passed by and introduced themselves as new members of IDAA. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to these people. So anything I'm going to say from here, I'll be kind of minor compared to that. Thank God I was here to witness that. Now, let me say a little bit about who I am, and I'm going to make it. I know you all have been sitting a long time, and I'm very conscious of that. And talking is just like flying combat to me. Every time, I don't care how many times I went to the bathroom, every time I got it all strapped back on, I felt like I had to go one more time before I got an airplane. <laughs> and I've been out about four times already, and I need to go again, but I'm going to hold on now and try to get through get through this damn mission if I can, you know. <laughs> but that. Uh, I'm CD, an alcoholic from Statesboro, Georgia, the AA capital of the world. <laughs> and by the grace of God, strong sponsorship, a lovely wife, and you people I've been sober since October 21st, 1957. For that I'll be eternally grateful. I know not why or how. I do not know today. I don't have any explanation for it except I've Joined you people and become a part of it, and I've been sober. Thank God for that today. I'm glad that I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why I became an alcoholic. Maybe you do. I do not. We were not rich. We were not poor. I was not overly mothered. I was not underly fathered. We didn't do anything. I was just an average deal, you know, growing up in life. But the thing that started me drinking was the ladies, you know. That's right, I took my first drink on account of a lady, and we got some people in here who knows the lady I'm talking about. She's in North Carolina, and she's still the lady today as far as I'm concerned. But anyways, I started drinking by reason of her. I went out and dated two or three times. Every time I dated, I'd wind up drunk, she'd take me home, put me out, and take my car home. That's embarrassing. <laughs> so I know a lot about pharmacology, and this is what little bit I'll tell you about pharmacology. I worked at a drug store as a Soda jerk. A man by the name of Frank Davis. I told Frank I was getting drunk every time I took this lady out. He said, next time you have a date with a CD, come by the drugstore here and I'll get you some extra heavy mineral oil. And you take that before you go out and it'll coat your belly and you can drink and you won't get drunk.
1: I'm
0: going to be in trouble about this, but I'm going to tell it the way it was. I went by and got me a half a pint of extra heavy mineral oil. It was so thick you had to chew it to get it down. (laughs) And we went out on this date, and I thought, well, tonight's the night,
1: you know, drink for drink.
0: To make a long story short, I wound up drunk and messed up my pants. (laughs) So I cut out. (laughs) I was not going to like this, I know, but that's (laughs) it. Being raised in South Georgia, I hope some of y'all, I know some of y'all from South Georgia, I was raised up and go to church in Sunday school every time the door opened. I was a primitive Baptist, I hope. If any of y'all in here, then you'll identify. Dorothy does, I know. <laughs> primitive Baptist. They had me by the hand and drug me to church and Sunday school. And the preacher preached hellfire and damnation. You're going to burn in hell forever. I don't know if you all ever heard this or not. You're going to burn in hell forever if you think about it. I got about 13, I began to think about some things. I don't know about y'all, I began to think about some things. I thought, oh God, I'm gone, you know. I'm gone. <laughs> if you think about it, you committed to sin, you know. Thank God through the AA program, I found something different. But I began to think about some things, and when I began to think about things, I had a guilty conscience. And y'all, I don't know about y'all, but I needed something to stop the conscience. That's what I drank liquor. I drank liquor to kill the conscience. And I drank it till it refused to kill the conscience in the end. It would not do it. That's where I started off. I. It was not an alcoholic in the beginning. I went over to Citadel, Charleston, South Carolina. Left there, went to law school. Left law school after I'd finished law school. Married I out of my senior year in law school. Went into World War II and became a fighter pilot. Through the old P-40, the old shark-nosed job. The P-47, the jug, most of my time in the Army. I mean, old Army Air Force. Came out of there and went to work for the government. Is an adjudicator in Atlanta, Georgia, is a judge of claims against the federal government. Worked there with a van by the name of Corneal 4. I tossed it out because some of y'all know Corneal. Very good friend of mine. I worked there. Continued to fly airplanes on weekends. Fly around the countryside having one heck of a big time, one weekend a month. We'd find a policy to get in those airplanes. We'd go to Dallas, or Miami, or Washington, wherever we could go. Have one heck of a big time. I thoroughly enjoy flying. It's still a part of me to date. But I was always weathering in in good town. I don't know why that makes any sense. And I would weather in. There's somebody down there that identifies with that deal. I'd weather in. And I would call out of back and tell I was weathered in. And I'd say, don't take off at the weather bed. Stay right where you are. You know. And I was in Washington, D.C. one time and I called out and told I was weathered in. And we had one of these smart gals. I'm not going to use the word that needs to be used. Dick's wife was over there when I called out. She said, let's call the damn weather office and find out what the weather is up there. <laughs> So she gets on the phone calls Dobbins Air Force Base and says, what's the weather in Washington, D.C.? weather's clear and the visibility's unlimited. That better day. It's a beautiful day. (laughs) I come home on Tuesday, come dragging in, and Ida confronted me with this information she had found. And like all good alcoholics, I said, let me tell you something, Ida. You can't find out what the weather is in Washington. That's top secret, ain't it? And if you call Dobbins Air Force Base anymore, checking up on me flying these highly classified missions, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble, so don't call it up in. <laughs> so I began to become a good liar, as most of you know it. I'll tell you what's the truth. I came one of the... Even after I got sober, I you had a time. and I don't want you to... I had a time stopping lying after I got sober. You know, I'd lie about any damn thing. I come in one afternoon from work, was getting undressed, take a shower. And my father had given me a nickel-plated coat, forty-five. he He'd had the years it had six bullets in it. It was in the top dresser drawer. As I was taking off my clothes to get undressed, I reached up, pulled open the top dresser door, took the forty-five, out, cocked it, and pointed it right between my eyes, me sitting on the side of the bed, and said, tell me all about it.
1: <laughs>
0: and I didn't know which it was. <laughs> and I began to do something I became very good at. I fell in the floor and started begging and crying. <laughs> I kept saying, Don't shoot me, you're gonna hurt me. Hell of forty five. <laughs> forty five a bull hole in you the biggest tomato can, you know. And I knew I was fixing to die. When she pointed a gun at me, I could see the undertaker, and I saw the whole funeral right there. I it was gone. <laughs> gone right there. But let me say one thing, I'd have cut it out, you know. She, she brought that to a screeching hall. I checked out in Jets in nineteen forty nine. And I tell this because this is some of the trauma that went on in my life. And they didn't have any two-seater jets. I got the first jet aircraft I was ever in, and ever, I had to fly. And some of you out there, I know are pilots. I got three or four good buddies. I, and it was one of the most traumatic experiences I've ever had in my life because I talked to a guy who had flown one, and then I get in it, and I am get in an airplane. I mean, you sit in an airplane that had a great big radial engine with 18 cylinders, four-bladed prop, weighed seven and a half tons. I sat behind it. I get in an airplane, it's got a bubble that comes over the top of it, and it's got a pipe that comes down between your legs and goes out the back, and they build a damn fire in the thing. You know, <laughs> and, and it was the dirtiest experience I've had in my life. Now, I'm not exaggerating this at all, but I never will get I got in, we talked about it all, and they struck a match and lit the fire, you know. And they, I attach it out to the end of the runway, and they send an instructor behind you to follow you out there the way they did because they had no two-seaters. A guy followed me by the name of Patillo. Followed me out to the end of the runway. I get out there, and I call the tower. Tell them I'm ready to go. And they turned me over to Patillo, my instructor, who's sitting behind me in another aircraft. And he said, what's going on? Well, see, I said, everything looks pretty good to me. And he, we talked a little bit. And I said, everything looks okay. It's all in the green. And if you're in the Air Force, you know what that means. Everything's in the green. It means it ought to go. So they cleared me to take off. And I poured the coal of this jet down the runway. We'd go. And about halfway down the runway, this blue smoke began to boil up between my legs. And I thought, oh, God, it's on fire. And I run my hand down. It was cold. The damn thing was air conditioned. I didn't even know it. <laughs> I pulled it in the air, and I was literally so scared, I didn't do anything. I just said, Aah! you know, let her go. Old Patillo's following me. In about five minutes, he called me and said, Collins, you better make a turn. You're already in
1: Alabama.
0: <laughs> I was clean-eyed the damn state of Georgia. Never made a turn. Let her go. I came back and landed the aircraft and put it on the ground. And let me say here now, ladies and gentlemen, if it wasn't the easiest airplane in the world to be flying, C.D. Collins would not be up here Talking to you tonight, because I've flown it just as drunk as a damn cooter. And I'd sit up at 85, I mean 30,000 feet and just lay back and kind of doze around, you know, and if anything happened to wake you up, you could nose off it, there. you? <laughs> and I would do this, flying that aircraft, because it was so easy to fly. I was down in Savannah one weekend, some of y'all know where that is. I'd flown down there and spent the weekend and gotten drunk. Come back by Statesboro, where Ida's sister lives. Circle town on Sunday morning, about 10,000 feet. You know, and and back then, this is 1949. Nobody saw a lot of jets around in small town. I circled town, and Lucille, her sister and George, and the three younguns come out the yard and waved at me. You know, waving at me. I thought, well, they want me to give them a thrill, so I will. So I rolled it over like this and come screaming down. I'm looking right over the nose of this F-84, and I see George, Lucille, and three children in the yard. (laughs) And I had been drunk, and I was a little slow on my reflexes. So when I horsed it out, all I saw was pecan trees, you know. And I hit the top of the pecan tree in their backyard, got leaves, pecans all in the air scoop and everything else. Flew it back to Atlanta, scared a to death about it, got away with it, it was okay. Called back on active duty in 1950 in the Korean conflict. as a jet fighter pilot wound up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I had an idea that we living on the base working for a Colonel Douglas. I heard someone talk about Fayetteville, Arkansas. That's where he was originally from, Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he was working for Colonel Douglas and flying aircraft around the countryside, putting on demonstrations, showing them what the airplanes could do, trying to get additional funds from Congress, this type of thing. And we flew around drinking a lot of liquor, having a big time, you know. And then I got orders to go overseas because they needed fighter pilots in Korea very badly at that time. And he tried to keep me. He said I was a good officer. that was not true. I was a good pilot and loved liquor. That's the two things that we identified very much on. And so his orders came for me to go, and he was going to give us a farewell party at home, which he did, and gave a big drunken blowout. I don't know any of y'all ever been to an Air Force drunken fighter pilots deal, but there's nothing to compare with one of them. They're a unique thing. We got over, and everybody got drunk and raised and sand and having a big time. And Colonel Douglas came over to me and said, Collins, can you fly a B-25? I said, I'm the best damn B-25 pilot you've ever seen. Now, when I'm drunk, I think I can fly anything. I don't know about y'all. He said, Would you take me down to Columbus, Georgia in the morning? I said, I'd be glad to, Carl. I'd overheard part of the conversation. She came over and said, Honey, you can't fly B twenty five. I said, He's drunk and I'm drunk, forget it. The party broke up, and we went on. We got in the house and we were in there getting undressed and he drove his Cadillac up across the lawn there on the base, <laughs> blowed the horn and hollered, Let's go! I put the uniform on, staggered out, went out and got in the car. We drove down to the flight line, pulled up the flight line, and parked, and I looked out right in front of the flight line, and there set a B-25. Now, I knew what a B-25 looked like. I'd taxed by them a lot of times around, parked around. And there was one parked out there. He fell out of clearance. We came out. A sergeant came up and saluted the colonel and said, that your aircraft's ready to go. We staggered out the airplane. I thought we were playing a game. You know, I said, any minute we'll quit and go into Austin's Club and bring some liquor. <laughs> We staggered out the airplane, he said, you go first. I said, no, you go first. I said, you go first. So I, I I climbed up through the bottom of the aircraft and got up there. You go right up to the main gear, sit down, VIP airplane, flushed up, high rank. And he came up to it, and I thought, well, we played far enough now, you know. And I said, listen, Douglas, I can't fly no B-25. He said, hell, you said you could. Let's go. I thought the sergeant was going to faint. <laughs> he turned white as a sheet. If I'd have been him, I'd have just walked off the whole deal. And I just, me and the colonel both drunk as a cooter. The colonel lay down in the back seat and passed out. I turned to the sergeant. I said, can you crank it up? He said, yes, sir. I said, get in the right seat and crank it up. He got in the right seat and cranked it up. And I got in the left seat, buckled up good. And I looked around at a maze of instruments. Some of them I recognized. Some of it, you know. And, uh, I said, uh, where does the fuel go? He said, it all feeds into one main tank. You draw off the main. I said, fine. I called the tower for taxi instruction. They cleared me out to the end of the active runway. And I got out to the end of the runway. I thought, there ought to be a lot you check in a B-25. There isn't a fighter. But I didn't know what to check, so I just held the brakes with my toes and pushed the throttle all the way forward. And everything went up into the green, as we say. And it all went up into the green. That means it ought to go, you know. So (laughs) I called the tower and told them I was ready to go. And they cleared me out on the active runway. And I poured the coal to that B-25. And down the runway we go. And about halfway down the runway, the thought occurred to me. This is a hell of a way to die. I wasn't even excited about it. I I, just is a hell of a way to die. I pulled it in the air, and he cleaned it up for me. He got the wheels up and the flaps up and got it cleaned up, and we headed out for Lawson Field down at Columbus, Georgia. About an hour out of Fort Bragg. If you're an alcoholic, you'll understand the next remark. Liquor died out. And it dawned on me we're going through the air now. Listen to this: there's three people on board, me a sergeant and a colonel. I'm in the left seat where the pilot's supposed to be. Nobody on board can fly it. I panicked. Put it my. I just got terribly disturbed I realized that I was a pilot. You know, I said, "Go back there and get that colonel up and get him up here." And get him to help me land this damn thing. You know, how am I going to get it on the ground? He'd come back up me, pull up my headset, said that. Colonel said, come in over here in the runway about 125 miles an hour. Chop the power and it should land. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's
0: exactly what I did. And I made a beautiful landing on a B-25 down at Lawson Field, Columbus, Georgia. We went in officer's club. I had three double martinis and flew the damn thing back. <laughs>
1: Please.
0: I went on overseas. i will get, get through the drunk log real went on overseas in the southern part of Japan, Fukioka. Got over there, and I didn't want to die. I didn't want to fight. I didn't want to be there, and I wasn't enthusiastic about the whole deal at all. And we began to fly combat, and I... I Began to drink because I needed to drink. And I think this is a dead giveaway. It was in my life. It's a dead giveaway that you in trouble, serious trouble. I began to drink. We had a guy get up at the night and introduce himself as a flight surgeon. I, God, I'd like to talk to this guy because we had two over with us. It was a great guy. I began to drink liquor in order to fly. We'd go down for briefing every morning. I'd have anywhere from three or four drinks before I got in the airplane, go north into Korea, drop those two 1,000-pound bombs, get rid of the rockets, try to shoot up the ammunition, and come back, stay alive. I lied a lot about what all I did. I could stand and talk for hours about what all I did. I lied about it. The only thing I did, I tried to stay alive. Ladies and gentlemen, I, when we get in a damn big dog fight, the only thing I'd do, I could outturn the MIG. I could outturn him and as soon as I could level out and I'd run like hell and he'd lock on me again and start shooting at Never did get used to getting shot at. I don't know why I never did. <laughs> Your mouth gets dry. I do you on. Thank you. I need it. I need it. <laughs> And I got in trouble that one day and there's a red light come on in an F-84, which we were flying over, and it comes on, it said, and, and I'm serious. And the instruction on what to do, it says, pray, Al, that's all it said. It doesn't tell you, when this red light comes on, pray, it means it comes on you out of fuel. You know, it came on. And my mouth got so dry, I, t- I couldn't get enough saliva to say Mayday. I catch up. May it. May. I tried to get enough saliva to, you know, to say Mayday. You know, where somebody could pick me up. Finally got enough saliva on my tongue to say Mayday, and they vectored me into an airport there and I made it landing in just across the 38th parallel. But I went into alcoholism while I was in Korea. This I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. It was based in Tegu, Korea there. And I met a Catholic priest there. And I want to share this with you, and I'll get along with it fast, try to, because I know y'all have been sitting a long time. I met Father Ford from Boston, Massachusetts. Great big red-faced Irishman. I hope some of y'all are Catholics, because he loved liquor and he loved pilots. And he lived with us and stayed with us. We left the States with 75 pilots. We lost 37 of them the first eight months I was over there. And he stayed with us and drank liquor with us and prayed with us. And every time a guy would get killed, he'd have a mass for him the next day. And I learned to love this guy very much and talked to him quite a bit about my own. I wrote my mother about the Catholic priesthood. She got all excited, wrote back, don't join the Catholic Church, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: anyway, I'm flying a lot of altitude over and I begin to do a lot of hemorrhaging from the nose from flying so much altitude. And the flight surgeon said, you see, you're going to have to have it repaired. And uh, so they were going to send me back to Japan to have my nose repaired and stop the bleeding. And I went to see Father Ford. I said, Father Ford, I'm going back to be operated on. And, and I've been on looking now for almost a year on a daily basis. And let me say one thing, ladies and gentlemen. I tried one day to fly without drinking. I was unable to do it. And I began to throw up over the side of the aircraft as I it out. And I never attempted anymore to fly without drinking. But I told Father Ford, I said, just send me to go you to be operated on. And if I get over in that hospital and, and I don't have any look, I don't know what will happen to me. Now, you all think of this. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know I was in trouble. But evidently deep down I knew I had a problem because I said, I, I get in that hospital and don't have any look. I don't know what'll happen to me. Do you have any connections in Nagoya? He said, see, I don't know anybody over there. But I'll call. So he called over and got a Catholic priest on the phone in Nagoya at this general hospital. And he said, I'm sending a Lieutenant Collins over to be operated on. He said he's a Baptist in a hopeless case. Don't try to convert him, but bring him some liquor, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: and, uh, I checked in this hospital, and the day I checked in, this major came in with a little cross-up bed, and he brought me a fifth of liquor every day I was in the hospital. Now, let me say something. Think about what this makes remark. If you'd have waited on the Baptist to bring a drink, you'd have died and went to hell.
1: Now, that's true.
0: And I needed liquor. Let me say I needed liquor. Had they not given me liquor, I'd have gone into DTs within, you know, eight or ten hours after that. I'd have come apart. I tell you. But he brought me liquor. He bought me a fifth a day every day I was in And I stayed drunk. Even the day I was on us, drunk. I came out of the hospital, went back to Korea, finished my tour. Came home a full-fledged alcoholic. This I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, and I and the children met me in Savannah, Georgia. I had a son born while I was over there. She and the girls met me in Savannah, two little girls, and left the boy at home with her sister. And they met me. And they didn't recognize me. I had a great big handlebar mustache. It curled right up under my eyes. I'd gained up to 185 pounds. I'd left the states weighing 137. And now we had 185. I drank so much slick and chased it with beers I'd blown up like a frog out of we bloated. <laughs> I could look straight out and see my cheeks, you know, when I looked out. <laughs> and Ida and them didn't recognize me when I got off airplane. And I told Ida who I was and she still wasn't too happy and she... You know. She didn't want to kiss me, and the kids didn't want to kiss me. Nobody did, you know. And, and hell, I've been fighting a war, you know. And, and that hurt my feelings. And on the way home, I stopped at a little town of Blitston where I got a fifth of luck, And I was drunk first time I laid eyes on my son, C.D. III. And I hope I don't forget to tell you something about him. First time I saw my son, I was drunk. We went back to Atlanta, Georgia. I went back to work with the government. Tried to stay sober. Was unable to do it. Began to drink on a daily basis again. In our office, I hope none of y'all work for the government. I worked in, in our office you could drink They had old lawyers And very young lawyers There wasn't no in-between Ones that couldn't get a damn job Those it's old They didn't want one You know So it, that's the kind of people We had working there And anyway You could drink on the job But they had an ironclad rule in office If you fell out of your chair They fired you We had a guy Fell out of his chair one day over, went, One of the smartest lawyers Fell out of the chair And they fired him So I used to hold on You know I just kind of Hold on real tight Wouldn't even go to the bathroom I would to begin to have trouble with me. We begin to have a lot of trouble in the home. And let me say right now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad you're laughing because I'll tell you one thing. If I couldn't laugh today and have fun, I would not be here. And I thank God you can laugh. I, I used to tell this in a different way. It's a horror tale, really. A horror tale. Me and this lady that I love so dearly now begin to do the things we said we never would be, do in our lives. We begin to cuss and fuss and talk and carry on like idiots in our home. In front of the children, we began to do the very things we said we never would do. And it came to the point in Ida's life where she could no longer tolerate the situation. And she left me and moved to Statesboro, Georgia. And that's the reason I'm in Statesboro today. She moved down there and divorced me for her habitual drunkenness. And I'm the only registered drunkard I know in Bullock County. But I'm on the record up there as a drunkard. And you can read about me. Any ever in the court, I say, I'm going to read about C.D. Collins. Just say, I'm a drunkard. You know, and there's nothing you can do about that. It's there to be there forever. But I'd have divorced me, and I thank God for that today, that she divorced me. Because I believe in my own particular life, and I've heard many of you express the same thing. The only damn thing that gets us here is pain and trouble. And that's what began to happen to me. i divorced me, and I love the woman very dearly, and I began to have trouble. And I wound up over in Birmingham, Alabama, working for Social Security. And I wear a coat and tie every day to my office. And I have a secretary and all this type of stuff. And I'm drinking on the job every day. It's no big deal with that. But things began to happen to me, and I believe God was intervening in my life. This is the way I felt for many, many years. Because two men came into office one day and said, we'd like to see Mr. Collins. And they come back to introduce themselves. said, would you mind riding downtown with us? I said, not at all. I'd be glad to. I told my secretary, I said, I'll be right back. Evidently they have some tough case downtown they want me to see in the local office. And I'll go down there with them. So I went out and got in a plain black Ford and we drove downtown in the middle of Birmingham, Alabama. Pulled in front of this huge gray building and all got out. But got out and looked right above the building and says, Birmingham Jail. And I screamed like a stuck hog. I hollered, ah, and the guy just picked me up in his arm and walked right into jail with me. Now, I know none of y'all have ever been locked up, but it's one of the most impressive things <laughs> that, ever, that ever happened to a human being. I, I'm in there with a coat and tie, you know, and let I me mean, tell you what, they put me in this big cell about 75 other guys. And the guy locks the door and walks off. And let me tell you what, since you've never been locked up, the first question is asked, what are you in for? I said, the warrant said child support. Said, Judge Smith will give you five years of hard labor for that. I like to die right there. <laughs> I could see myself on the chain gang in Birmingham, Alabama, you know. A professional bondsman came down and got me out. I went home to my mother and father in Atlanta, Georgia. I never did even go back to the office. Wired him and told them I resigned. Of course, I knew what was going to happen anyway. I got home to mom and Daddy. Now, Mama said the reason I drank liquor is because I live without her. I said anybody who lived with Ida would have to drink, you know. But I don't have Ida, and I'm home with mom and dad, and it didn't take mom and dad about a week to find out what they had. <laughs> I don't know where y'all ever heard of these or not. You know, you laying in one room coming to, and you hear them talking about you in the other room. And my mama told my dad, I said, Clifford, load him up and carry him down to Statesboro, Georgia, and whatever it takes, you get Ida to take him back. <laughs> So daddy loaded up and carried me to Statesburg to see this woman. And we go down to see an item. And we stayed a little motel out A little motel still there today. The I never go by. I don't think about it. We stayed out there and we go in to see this lady every day. And every time we go and see her, it's like, now you often, up in Kentucky, maybe, it's like pouring term time on a cat when Ida would see me. She'd get all excited and she'd go cussing and talking ugly and acting ugly, you know, and, and, uh, and then, man, my daddy was there trying to talk her into taking me back, you know, and this is going, on, and she gets so mad, she'd run over and grab the phone and start down. So, I'm going to have you locked up. I said, well, if you're going to put me on the chain gang, I want to be on the chain gang here in Statesboro. Why wouldn't I come out on that truck every day and wave at my children, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: 23 years or so by before I told this, of course, Dot and some of the rest of them, what know, was. 23 years. I'd to sit right out in front of me one night. I said, I'm going to tell it like it happened. I saw her light up like a Christmas tree. I did know I was in trouble or not. Well, she, of course, she didn't have no 45. I wasn't worried about it. <laughs> but after several days of conferences with my dad, it boiled down to a money transaction. My father paid my wife in cold cash money to remarry me.
1: <laughs> How much, God damn it! <laughs>
0: God, he tore She still says he didn't pay me enough. She says that, I don't think he didn't pay me enough. Oh God! So we were remarried up at the Baptist church on a Saturday. It wasn't a festive occasion. Nobody, nobody was throwing rice to anything. It was just like a damn funeral. Nobody wanted to go, you know. And we had to go. And you ever seen a woman come down an aisle with three children following her, you know? So we remarried, and like all good alcoholics, I said, listen, don't ever mention liquor to me again as long as you live. I never want to hear the word. So we got in a car, headed out for Savannah, Georgia, to take a little short honeymoon 50 miles away. Had borrowed a car and borrowed money. Got about 8 or 10 miles out of town, an old brain starts working again. And what's left of it? And I said, listen, since we're on our honeymoon, wouldn't it be alright if we had a drink today? And what I found out later was she wanted one, too. She said, yeah, if you don't get drunk. So we stopped and got a fifth of luck and both got drunk. We hadn't been married four hours. That's what we both drunkers do. Came back to Statesboro, Georgia. Very ashamed. Very embarrassed about the whole deal. Tried to stay sober. Was unable to stay sober. Got started back on the booze again. This is the last year of my drinking product coming in the a. Got back on the booze again. And that ladies and gentlemen, I went down the hill so fast. Thank God today for where it happened to me. Once I drink now, I lose all control. I cannot stop at all. Once I take a drink of liquor, I will do anything in order to continue. I don't want any all I get or not. It doesn't make a bit of difference to me what it is. I will do anything in order to continue to drink once I start at this phase of my drinking. I began to write bad checks, charge liquor, do whatever was necessary in order to get it. It would make a bit of difference to me once I started drinking. And everything went real fast for me. I went to work with the Department of Transportationism common laborer. Lucky to have a job of any kind because I was staying drunk most of the time. And I thank God for this again. My recovery was a long, drawn-out process, and I thank God for that because it impresses me today <laughs> very, very much. I went to work with the Department of Transportation, tried to stay sober, was unable to stay sober, eventually wound up where I could no longer write checks, I could no longer charge liquor, I could no longer get liquor anywhere except over from a bootlegger on the Agiche River and... Now, we got a little river down there, and they made a it work, and it's known as syrup liquor. And every night and then I run into somebody in an AA meeting who knows what I'm talking about. If a farmer's buying two tons of sugar a month, they know he's bootlegging. And they go out and check on him and find out where the steel is, and they rest it. But they came up with the idea of putting cane syrup in the corn buck and distilling it, and it comes out as syrup liquor, what they call syrup liquor. And it has a sweet, sickening, sour odor. It's the darnest odor you'd ever smell, and you would never buy a half a pint of it to drink, cause, you, you know, you're gonna throw up. You take a drink, you throw up. You take a drink, throw up. And you do this. But if you can hold on real tight and lay, lay down, and once it lays down, then you can go with it. You know, it's like old granddad in there. Said, go. Go back. And it was four dollars a gallon, and so I got on this stuff. And I'd bring it home by the gallon. So, but one thing about drinking this stuff is the odor. And so Ida's sister smelled it, and uh, I don't know what it was. And Ida said she didn't know, but Ida did know. And that's when Ida moved me out of the house. In the little closet on the back porch. back She said it was a bedroom. It wasn't a bedroom. It was a closet. You know, what? was in that one little room in. had a 40-watt bulb that hung down in my face. And I kept that little bulb burning right in my face all the time. It was coming off these drunks. had a jug of water in a pan. And that one little window, and that's the way I'd come off the drunks. And Ida was working, making the living, and I was staying drunk on this syrup liquor. And, ladies and gentlemen, I have total recall of this today. And I thank God, and I hope, pray to God, it never leaves me, how it was in that room. How it was. We had a lady who was looking after the children out of making a living. And she'd come around and look in the window and see if I was breathing. I don't know why they didn't open the door. And you people in the medical profession, I've asked many of you doctors, I don't know why. If you've been drunk eight or ten days and you're trying to come off of it, you don't have to breathe very much. I don't know how you explain it. You can take a little breath and just wait a while, you know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Just wait a while, you don't move it. And this lady would come around and look in the door, and she wouldn't see any movement. She'd think I would dead. She'd run in and call out and say, "Miss Collins, he's dead today. You know, and I wouldn't even get excited. She'd say, don't worry about it. I'll check on when I get home. <laughs> I'd have come on. They'd both come around and look in the window and see if I was breathing, you know. And, and I'd have said she'd see a slight movement. She'd say, that SOB's not dead. Maybe he'll be dead tonight. <laughs> very hopeful, ladies and gentlemen, very hopeful. My father had take it, paid her to take me back, and there was no way that she could get with me unless I died. And she prayed to God that I would die. That's the way it was, that I would die. I would die. I'd come to on the floor in the living room, and I'd see my two beautiful daughters walk out the door, those worn-out shoes and those tattered dresses, and I'd have to get up off the floor and go get more liquor. Now, nobody but an alcoholic understands that. I told that to my minister, and he liked to faint. He said, God, looked like you'd never drink again. I said, you don't understand. I had to drink to stop the wheel from turning my head wide I didn't know how, what in the world had happened to me, how I got where I was. I didn't understand it at all. Nothing about it. Nothing about it. Still don't know anything about it today, ladies and gentlemen. Still don't know anything about it today. We read a piece in the Atlanta Journal out of it and found there was a treatment center in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm one of the first that our part of the country went up to. George Alcoholic Clinic under Dr. Vernell Fox. And I tossed that name out because I found out, yes, she's still alive on the West Coast. So I went up there, went to treatment, went to a 28-day program, and they extended me right after I got there found out that I needed more treatment. And let me say here and now what they did. The medical staff met every day with the nurses and everybody else. They met every day, and they uh, evaluated every patient. And I found out later I had a female medical doctor as a counselor. They never gave me a favorable report. in time. Collins, down. Colin, nope. Colin, nope. Never a chance. The guy I roomed with, Sandy Sanderson, and I'll break his anonymity, he covered the Nuenberg trial. Some of y'all might remember this. Brilliant man, married and had two children. They thought Sandy might stay sober. He was my roommate. I came out of that hospital, came back to Statesboro, Georgia. Ida had already filed for the second divorce. All the judge had to do was sign the order. She would not let me come home, but I came down anyway. Stayed in the basement of a hotel, went around to see this lady, and they recommended Alcoholics Anonymous to me in this treatment. Very hot. There was no AA in Statesboro, Georgia. We did not have a group there at all. The nearest one was in Savannah, which is 55 miles away, and one in Dublin about 60 miles, and then Augusta, Georgia, 75 miles. They recommended to me. I had no car, had no money, no clothes, anything. They recommended it to me. I talked to my minister. Couldn't do anything about it. So I stayed sober for. A few weeks and somebody on Alanon read in the paper about AA in Savannah, Georgia and she went out and found out something about it and she got the sheriff to take her husband down there and he found out something about it he came back and got AA started in Statesboro, Georgia. And we were invited to attend the first meeting. Looked like that ought to amaze you. Why were we invited but we were? The guy asked me, said, City, come on, go to the first meeting of AA. So we went. Four people. Went in Alcoholics Anonymous. We went, I went to AA on a regular basis. People came up from Savannah, Georgia, sponsored us came up and talked to us, tried to get us started. People came down from Dublin, tried to get us started. And they would rotate getting drunk. Everybody but me, everybody got drunk in that, out of the four except CD, and I stayed sober. But ball down one time there were only two people going to the meeting, me and one other guy from Lyons, Georgia, town 35 miles away. And then the good Lord smiled on me and Ida because a man came on the scene by the name of John M. Came on the scene. And he wanted what A.A. had to offer. He had found A.A. in a. This city. And he wanted what AA had offered. I had an office which was straight across the street from his doctor. He's practicing medicine up until he took his license. I'm with the engineering department here. Next door is an AA club room and next door to that is a lawyer in Anyway, this man came on the scene and we began to go to AA meetings. And let me say here and now, Dot and John gave us a lot of credit, but they saved mine and Ida's life. You know, in trying to go and help with them, they saved our life. I made hundreds and hundreds of trips. We didn't have any money, we didn't have any. John didn't have any, nobody had any, but we could get gas and go. We'd go to Orangeburg, South Carolina, one hundred miles from the door of their house to the A club room, one way. That's a two hundred mile trip. We'd go to a meeting up there, we'd go to a meeting in Augusta, Georgia, go to a meeting in Dublin, Georgia, we'd go wherever was necessary in order to go to these meetings, and we had some heck of a good time, let me say. Some rough time but good times. I look back on it now. And can't believe everything had happened. God and John were having the same trouble that Ida and I had. And they were going round and round like a three-ring circus trying to get their act together. And Ida and I were having the same problem. Because when I sobered up, it didn't change. I wasn't, I wasn't a, a bum one day and a nice guy the next day. I continued to lie about everything. I needed to rebuild trust in this woman. I'd have said, where you been? I said, filling station wouldn't have been to the damn drugstore. You know, didn't make a better difference. You know? <laughs> They'd it built right into the system. I would lie about everything. John found out I was a pilot. Now let me tell you about this. This is as wild as I've ever got into. It. I found out I was a pilot. He said, "Can you fly like same old boy?" I said, "Anything." You know, <laughs> hadn't been in an airplane because I'd been <laughs> They'd kicked me out of the National Guard by reason of flying. A lady, drunk on Sunday, and a T-33 jet went out, and I were divorced. They picked us up. That's a story within itself. They picked us up. Colonel Wilson did, and they were going to court-martial me. Or either I could resign my commission, so I resigned my commission, so I'm no longer in any type of flying. And I told John I was a pilot. He said, well, I need to go back to Lexington, Kentucky. I want to make a talk up there. I said, fine. So I went out one afternoon and got in an airplane that I'd never been in before in my life, and the guy went around and let me shoot three landings in this little bitty airplane. I'd been flying an airplane that weighed seven tons. I get in one that weighs, you know, a thousand pounds, I reckon. And I shoot three landings. He said, okay, you can go. So I done and John myself came to Lexington in that aircraft. And I'll never forget as long as I live. I'm petrified. I had not been in an airplane in years. The last ten years my flying was drunk and I'm cold sober now and I haven't been in an airplane in six years and I get in an airplane I'm flying it. John's up there with a set of maps trying to tell me where I'm going. Got out in the back seat to sleep, you know. And we in the stoop, and sweat's rolling off of me because, hell, I don't want the heart of what I'm doing. I'm literally petrified. If I'd have been a drinker looking airplane I'd have taken it. But anyway, we wound up coming to Lexington. Come here and landed. Went out to the US Public Health Hospital. They let us in and John talked out there. Never forget, as long as I live, we were out there yesterday. And I wouldn't take anything in the world for going back and revisiting the place where he had been for so long. And reliving some of it because it brought back a lot of very, very dear memories to me and the Dot and all of us. Went back and went out and saw that place. Anyway, he talked out there and we went back to the States first, stayed involved in it. Dot and John, like I and I and myself, I had a lot of things they had to straighten out. And John and I stepped and on all these trips, we talked a lot about what went on in our lives. We took the fourth and fifth step with each other many, many times. And the man helped me tremendously. And the one thing that he insisted upon, let me say here now, don't separate me ever. Don't you ever separate me when I walk in out. He was never Dr. Mooney to C.D. college. Never. He walked. He was John. Always John. Because that, he said, don't separate me. And he got up on the floor many times. Don't ever get up and call me Dr. Mooney in this A club don't do that to me, you separate. And I thank God for that because he was one of us. He went to the meetings on a regular basis. He chaired the meetings. He did everything everybody else is supposed to do. And that's the reason he loved it like he did. He saw he is a man who made a terrific change in the A program in Statesboro, Georgia, because we got our enthusiasm back by having this physician in with us. Certainly he was a prominent physician. We got him back in with us, and it impressed the hell out of me to have this guy in. He and Dot. And of course I could understand why Dot why John drank liquor, knowing dot he had a legitimate reason, but uh kind of like and we spent many, many days nights together. I, I guess it's a three year period we sit six or seven nights a week we were together. Going to meetings or either talking. We would talk all night long. We'd drive to a meeting in Charleston, South Carolina, three hundred mile round trip, get up and go to work the next day. Thought absolutely nothing about it. And when I hear people now who come in down I said, well, I got tired. I had to drive 20 miles across town to go to meet. Boy, I want to thank you, Joel. I want to. I want to knock him in the head. Cause hell, I don't. I'd go 300 miles to get a drink of liquor. You know, if you said, you know, I'd go anywhere in order to stay sober. I'll do whatever's necessary. And that's what this man was willing to do. Whatever's necessary. Willingway Way Hospital. His treatment of alcoholics evolved. It's something that evolved. He wanted to help people. He had a Desire to help his fellow man, and I think that's what it's all about. Because that's what we're doing here today. What tonight is trying to help our fellow man. And the, let me say here now, the paradox of Alcoholics Anonymous is this: and me trying to help you, it's returned to me tenfold. You may never get sober, but C.D. Collins stays sober. And if I'm out there trying to do my thing, then old C.D. stays sober. And I'm still involved in it today. I go to five closed meetings a week and two speakers meetings a right day. Now, thoroughly enjoy. But well, this is the type of thing we began to do. We began to go and talk to people, and John began to do whatever he could do in tr- order to try to help people. He brought him into his home, dots cooking, washing ironing, doing everything else, and we wanted to buy an airplane and get in the airplane business. And John's like all doctors, and I'm going to throw you all in a pot now, you might not like it. But money didn't mean a damn thing to him, whether he had it or didn't have it. It just didn't occur to him, you know. <laughs> so we out in the backyard one day, we had Bill Bowen, the mayor, hemmed up in the yard, and and uh, we had been wanting to buy an airplane, you know, do all this flying around the countryside. Saving drunk. We out there trying to get the money from Bill to buy an airplane. Doc comes out the back door and dumps some trash. She's in there trying to cook it. She said, you ought to pay the damn milk bill. You know, it's past due. You know, instead of trying to buy an airplane. That was the truth, you know. Hadn't paid the milk bill, but we're going to buy an airplane, you know. We had them come up demonstrating airplanes. We couldn't even buy a spare, we couldn't have bought a tire on one of them if it took my dunk. But we had them come up demonstrating. We was flying them all around the countryside. Had one heck of a big time. But my relationship with this man and this family, there's been something extraordinary because of what went on between all of us. We had a relationship like you would not believe, and it's still that way today. Dorothy, I love her very dearly, and I don't know about you people in AA here, but one thing that I found out, the word love is the most used word, most misused word, and the most abused word in the English language. Think about it. Yet we in Alcoholics Anonymous know the real meaning of love. If you've been around any length of time. To love another human being without asking anything in return is what it's all about. I love you not asking a damn thing back. God, if I told you love by love before I came in 80, there was an angle to it. You can bet your bottom dollar. I love you not asking anything in return back. That's the name of the game. And I've been in 80, and as I said, almost be 31 years, 30 years in October if I make it that long. Sponsored many, many people. Still sponsor a lot of people. Sponsored a lot of people in the medical profession. I don't know why. But he would come to Staysburg and John would say, go see Speedy. I don't know why he lied. I didn't have any knowledge, but I would tell him the straight of it, you know, I didn't mess around with it. I didn't, wasn't overly impressed with it. Burn, I didn't let him impress me about being a doctor. I just tell him what is necessary to stay sober, you know. You got to stop drinking liquor, treat your fellow man right, and go to these meetings. You know, it's kind of a simple deal. And it blows my mind the simplicity of the program today. You know, how simple it is. It's so simple it blows your mind. It does. The woman that hated and despised me, we had one hell of a relationship after I, Got sober, we still had one hell of a relationship. We played games with sex, money, and children. I don't know if y'all played those games or not, but the money come on, something might happen in the bedroom, but didn't, it wasn't nothing, you know. We played all kind of games, you know. And Ida and I had one hell of a time getting our relationship going. That's the reason we do what we do today, because I think next to staying chemically free, relationships is a second thing. I don't know how you feel, and you may not like what CD is saying, but I think my relationship with my fellow human being is next to being sober. I certainly got to be sober, chemically free first, but then my relationship with my fellow human being is next best. To be able to love people, understand them, and accept them is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. The woman that hated and despised me loves me and has loved me for a long time. We ride up down the road many, many times, holding hands, and she's sitting close to me. And I bet people pass, I bet that's not that old goat's wife, but it is. That's my wife. Really. Laughter Hold it. <laughs> Lord, I love her very dearly. Wouldn't take a million dollars for it, and this is as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous and the a The twelve steps are foolproof. I heard a man talk when I first came in you by the name of Tom P from Chappaqua, New York. Some of y'all have heard, and we had his tape. John and I did. We played it till we wore it out. We passed it, and I, and if anybody's got this tape, but he made in Augusta, Georgia, in nineteen hundred and. Fifty-eight, I would give $500 to get a copy. because I'm serious about it. Is that good a tape? We played it and played it and played it. It was that good. Tom Power said, I was a failure in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the way that the tape starts out. I was a failure in Alcoholics Anonymous because I could not or would not buy the God business. He stayed sober four years on guts, and he went back to drinking. And the last time he bought the God business, I understand he's still alive today in upper New York. Thirty-something years, about 38 to 39 years sober. But he got that. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank God today that I believe in a supreme being. And a supreme being I choose to call God. Because without that, I could not make it on a daily basis. Because since sobriety, I don't I, in the 30 years, we've had every kind of trouble you can name. You name it, we've had some of it. Now, that's another thing John used to say. Everybody said, whatever problem you had, go ask CD out of They've already had it. You know, and, he'd run. <laughs> and we've had it. We've had money trouble, job trouble, child trouble, everything you can think of. I have a son, C.D. the third, that was born while I was in Korea, is now a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He came up and picked up a white chip from his father, and ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't take one million cash dollars for what the boy did when he walked up and took a chip from his daddy. took cup up coffee with you know.
1: him. <laughs> <laughs> they got
0: used to it in the beginning. I used to land over the hospital over there all the time, the patients all run right out and wave at me, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And Al was with me in the helicopter, John used to fly with me. I took everybody. It was a government helicopter you pay taxes, I think you ought to be applying it, you're too
1: good.
0: Took okay, everybody up we go in. All the children in the neighborhood, everybody. It makes a difference to me. Coming in alcoholics anonymous, one more thing, I'll try to shut it down. Coming in all kind of things happened to us. We had an epidemic in our club room. Never could have quite figure it out. John didn't know what it was, a water, the ice man's bedman, what but Most of the women, about six of them, got pregnant in their E. Huh? And now, boy, if that don't blow your mind, we got two girls in college, one, a boy, say, in eighth grade, and Ida comes up pregnant. And when she found that out, I couldn't believe it. I thought, what in the world happened? You know, I couldn't figure it out, you know. But I finally found out what caused it, so we quit. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) she got pregnant and had this son, and the day the son was born, they were Twenty-something members of Alcoholics and I was standing outside the delivery room. We brought him out and he was still wet. Said, yeah, he is. And then so when i got out of the living room, she said, He's yours. You never have been here when any of the other one. Now you got you one. And she gave him to me, you know. <laughs> had three, and this had the fourth one come on. She gave me this son. So I had to change his diaper, burp him, and do the whole work. And I wouldn't take a million dollars. Now we didn't see how in the world we were going to live. But I wouldn't take a million dollars for being able to be with my wife. She had a baby. They're giving him to me to look after because I was able to do that. And I had a relationship with him. I rocked him. I have to tell everybody. He's 13 years old. I'd pick him up like that and carry him back. back to the damn bit. Because I loved him that much, you know. And we bird hunted and we fished and we flew airplanes and helicopters together and the whole bit. And I was coming by Willing Way over one day and Jeep, we've been bird hunting. He said, Daddy, ain't nobody got a daddy like I got. And the tears fell in my lap. Ain't nobody got a daddy like I got. And I cried like a baby for this boy. I tell him, man, I love him today better than anything in the world. Because he's the one that I was home without, you know, to do. And Dorothy had a new one. And we had a whole bunch of men. We had a rocket chair that they all sat in. So they quit sitting in the rocket chair. They didn't know what it called. <laughs> <laughs> but he had this other son. And I wouldn't take a million dollars for what happened then. Now, as I said, I haven't set the woods on fire. From a financial standpoint, I haven't done great things at all. But I got back in the military and flew till I was 60 years old then. Had a bunch of insurance, and I choose to say this is love. When I retired, I'd, I'd let me buy me an acrobatic airplane. Fully acrobatic. A decathlon, some of y'all know about it. So has got a symmetrical wing, it's got inverted fuel system, inverted oil system, and it'll fly upside down. It's like with are right side up. And I like to go over high school, and over in this fly upside down, do loops and roll, and, them and all that stuff. And they have two grandsons down there in the ROTC program, and they're out there marching. Back in the spring, and this, they're all looking up, this airplane raised in hell up there, and the instructor says, Who is that idiot up there? And my grandson says, That's my grandpa. He said, Well, I know what's wrong with you now. <laughs> <laughs> so I ought to let me buy the airplane because I got a lot of insurance, but I think it was love. I don't think it was insurance it had anything to do with it. But the woman that hated and despised me. Now, loves me, we have a relationship beyond your wildest dreams. And let me say here now another statement that you may not like at all. If you haven't reestablished a relationship with the people that you love, then you've missed the boat. You have missed the boat. We've seen a lot of people come in Alcoholics Anonymous who did not reestablish the relationships, did not put the effort into it, and his effort to reestablish relationships, to work at it, to rebuild trust, and get the whole thing going again because I had lost it all on me. She hated and despised me, and yet she had to live with me because Daddy paid so she needed the damn money. So she lived with me. We work like the devil on rebuilding the trust and we have. We love each other very dearly. We go around the countryside all the time. Being with people like you and being a part of what's going on. And I wouldn't take one million dollars for it. I thank God that I'm an alcoholic today. And I think I'm very sorry for what happened to the people that I came in contact with. And I tried to make them ends the best I could. You know, to try to get it straight. And that's what it's all about. I have nothing in a way of a financial ways way I I having set the woods on the fire. Man, we have a decent home. There on enough retirement to live on. But if I was going to bequeath anything to our children, which, we, you know, everybody likes to leave some type of legacy, I would leave the A way of life to them as a legacy. Because through this program, I found love and understanding beyond my wildest dreams. Now, as a young man, as a law school student, I wanted to be governor of the state of Georgia. That was my ambition as a young man. Still think I'd have been a better damn governor than some of them we have, but that's all right. I wanted to be governor of the state of Georgia. But you know what's the truth? I wouldn't swap places today or tonight with Joe Frank Harris. He's our present governor. I wouldn't swap places. And of course, Joe Frank Harris will never know what I know unless he becomes an alcoholic and goes through what I want. He will never know. No way would you know this unless you go through it, you know. And I hope and pray to God, you know, like it was when John went on it. Somebody, when I die, somebody passes by my casket and says, C.D. tried to help his fellow man, because I think that's the highest compliment you can pay a human being. I had rather you say that about me than have a statue erected to me on a courthouse on the Capitol Square in Atlanta, Georgia. Say he tried to help his fellow man, because that's what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. I only come through here one time, and that's the reason I'm up here tonight. And let me say here and now that you're a beautiful group of people, and I've enjoyed, and I feel the love and all, and I was dreading this very bit. I thought, God, what can I get up and say to a bunch of distinguished positions and all that makes sense. But the only thing I can say is, like Bernard Stallman said, CD, get up and tell your story and do it the best you can. And a man by the name of John M. and Dorothy M. who sat down, there, a lady that I love very dearly and her son by there who took his first flying with me. Now, I'm, I'm his co-pilot now. It's all reversed, you know. <laughs> but that's okay. Alan, I have one heck of a big time traveling around the countryside flying. He's an excellent pilot and I enjoy going with it. Coming up in, yesterday before he said, Automatic pilot doesn't work. You fly. You know, hell, I had to fly all the way up. Yeah, I'm an automatic pilot. You know, I <laughs> drive all the way up. But that's okay. I'm glad of it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been one of the highest honors I've ever had to be a part of this. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I love each and every one of you. For God's sakes, you people who came up here tonight and have introduced yourself and some of you were fairly new. For God's sake, stick with us because it will blow your mind and I'm serious as to what will happen to you if you stay in here and work the 12 steps, which is the program to the best of your ability, it will blow your mind is what will happen to you because I've seen it's blown mine and thousands of others. Thank you very much for listening.